welcome to FIGP's podcast series, FIGP Focus 45. FIGP is the only international NGO whose membership consists entirely of IP attorneys in private practice. The FIGP global community is driven by a shared interest among like-minded people to promote common solutions and advocacy for private practice. The FIGP business family makes the world a little bit smaller, bringing independent IP attorneys from around the globe together to focus on IP issues of global importance. Our host is Louis-Pierre Gravel, a registered patent agent and partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, Canada. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to FICPI's webinar and podcast series, FICPI Focus 45. My name is Louis-Pierre Gravel, and I'm a partner at Bereskin & Par in Montreal, in Canada. I'm a registered agent in Canada and the United States, and I work in the fields of quantum technology, AI, telecommunications, mechanical engineering, and information technology more generally. Following on the discussions we've had with Judge Michelle and Brad Walls in the United States on the Section 101 issue there, we turn our attention today to Canada, where there have been interesting developments in assessing patentable subject matter. We're joined today by Reshika Deer, a partner at Bereskin & Par in Toronto, who's been following this saga to talk about the state of patentable subject matter when it comes to computer-implemented innovations, and the latest case making its way through the courts, the Benjamin Moore case. Good morning and welcome, Rashika. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me here today. Thank you. So we're all, for the most part, pretty aware of the situation in the United States regarding Section 101. Has the proximity to the U.S., uh, in resulted in a similar upheaval of what is or is not patentable subject matter in Canada? That's a very interesting question. And I would say, um, to some extent, yes, uh, we are, um, you know, so close to the states and our, the Canadian Act, the way it's drafted is, uh, sounds a lot like and looks a lot like the uh, US Act and um, Section 101 there. But I would even take it as far as to say, you know, I've been filing patent applications um, for Canadian clients in other parts of the world as well. And more recently have had the opportunity to deal with these issues of patentable subject matter in the UK and Australia. And my general feel is that this is a widespread issue and a question that almost all patent offices seem to be dealing with. And there seems to be a disconnect between what the courts are saying and what the patent examiners and offices, uh, um, uh, you know, seem to interpret the law to be and what the profession wants the law to be and how things uh, should be resolved. So there's a certainly a need for a, you know, more clarity, more of a bright line test um, for more certainty and predictability for the applicants, um, not just in Canada, not just in the US, but in other parts of the world as well. In Canada, we've been trying to uh, deal with the question of patentable subject matter for about four to five decades now, um, for about 50 years. Um, and just to situate the folks who are, you know, listening to this uh, uh, this webinar, um, in Canada, we've got the Canadian Patent Act that obviously is the sort of the governing law on how you interpret um, inventions and 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 um, decide what gets a patent and doesn't get a patent. So we've got Section 2 here, which... Um, you know, basically defines an invention to be any new and useful art process, composition of matter, machine, or manufacturer. And for those who practice in the States, will readily recognize that this sounds a lot like the Section 101 there. 
Now in Canada, we also have the per se exclusion to abstract theorems and scientific principles under section 27.8 of the Patent Act. And we are a um, common law jurisdiction. So the case law obviously is a big part of how we interpret the law on this topic. Right, so starting point, as in most jurisdictions, definition of an invention in the act, whatever statutory instrument that might be. In Canada, we have specific exclusions. You would think that would be the end of the story because <laughs> the Patent Act has been uh, interpreted in many jurisdictions to uh, be a, a creature of the legislative body that wants it to be a living document, that it needs to improve, it needs to grow with, with technologies. One would think, right, let's go move on we go on to to the next to the next uh, criteria in the act but that's not really what's happened and i know there is a, a fairly important date when it comes to interpretation of claims and how you construct the claims and that was in the early 2000s but before the early 2000s there was some case law as you alluded to regarding how do we interpret the notion of patentable subject matter so maybe you could just spend a minute on that and explain to our audience how that was done then because it does have an impact on what happens afterwards. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I guess just to kind of go back to, you know, we talk about Patent Act and the case law. I mean, the other thing to keep in mind, which also becomes very important as we discuss the more recent cases, is our patent examiners have their own kind of rule book, which is MOPOP, which is the Manual of Patent Office Practice. Again, for those who practice in the U.S., it's similar to the MPEP there. And it is not the binding law, but it is certainly very instructive of uh, the patent examiners and how they are supposed to, or what their interpretation of the Canadian law is and how they actually apply the law. So that's a, a big part of this puzzle as well. Um, and, and to your question, in terms of older cases before 2000, we had a few cases. Now, mind you, generally speaking in Canada, most, most of the litigation happens in the pharma world, you know, generic versus um, uh, brand names and things like that. So we're, I would say, generally short on cases on this topic of patentable subject matter. Uh, but nonetheless, um, prior to 2000, there are two or three cases that have been significant in kind of framing and kind of putting us in this direction of the framework that's being used subsequently. So one of the cases that's um, notable is a case from 1970s called Lawson. And in that case, we had Mr. Lawson who tried to get a patent for what he thought was an innovative way of dividing up a piece of land or a plot of land. And his um, proposed solution there was to uh, use the shape of a champagne glass. So you had a broader face um, on one end of the land and a narrow stem on the other end. And by alternating that design, um, he figured that that's the most optimized way of dividing up land and filed a patent application for it. But the court there decided uh, that that's not what patents are for. Uh, this is really just a sort of a abstract you know, idea. It's not, uh, essentially what the court said was, you're not really making any change in the character of the land itself. It's, it's a shape, it's aesthetically appealing perhaps, but it's not really changing the fundamental of the land on which you are putting these designs and these uh, shapes. So from there came a sort of the first time a test of what a patentable art should mean. And yeah. Interestingly enough, the Lawson, uh, Mr. Lawson had also filed a patent 
application in the United States and it was granted there. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but in Canada, I mean, they were a little strict here and they said, uh, you know, a panel art should be, it's an act or a series of acts that are performed on a an object by a physical agent, but it needs to make some kind of a character or condition change to that object, which was not the case here. And then we, 10 years later um, or so, we had a case which some may, con- actually most people, I guess, consider it's kind of the first time um, computer-based invention was assessed or brought into question, brought into light to um, figure out whether or not the invention there was patentable or not. And this was the Schlumberger case. And this had to do with sort of the mining operation. So essentially the what was going on in the application the way it was described and the claims was a bunch of soil data was being captured it was measured and gathered then it would get transferred over to a computer for processing Um, and this was to do oil and gas exploration now that was an interesting case because now you have sort of what you see now is a computer you've got an algorithm running on that computer and it's doing some data processing and in that case the court decided that uh, this was not a patentable subject matter. It was a mere abstract idea. And essentially, the court said, well, hold on, you're using a computer in a well-known way, the way the computers are meant to use, which is take data, process them, and spew out an output. And these calculations could have been done using pen and paper and human mind, essentially, which was interesting for that time. But it certainly is something you hear again and again from patent offices today, where clearly, if I sit down to do using pen and paper, some huge computation for, you know, some kind of an invention in the fintech world where there's just so much data coming at you and complex processing that's taking place, uh, it's not humanly possible anymore. Um, it doesn't quite apply to today's, um, I want to say today, maybe in the last 10, 20, 20 years um, of, uh, of how computers are being used and what they're being used for. But nonetheless, that was kind of the decision there. And then we had another case, um, Shell Oil, which kind of picked up on what the patentable art should mean and add more meaning to it. And in that case, it was decided that if you have discovered a new use of an older or a well-known compound, that could still be a, that could constitute new and useful and patentable art. Okay. So we've got this framework. We're requiring some sort of physical change, but Shell Oil opens the door a little bit saying a new use for a known object or component that could also be patentable. So what happens in, in the early 2000s? Are Supreme Court weighs in on the issue. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, we have two seminal cases in 2000s. Um, they're called Free World Trust um, and the other one's um, uh, Whirlpool. And in these cases, so mind you, these cases were not really computer-based invention related. They were more mechanical cases, really. And they were, the context was there was an infringement proceeding. And as a counterclaim, there was a invalidity assertion on the patents that were being asserted for infringement. So in that case, uh, basically, the court said, listen, the test that we've been applying to assess, uh, to construe claims and assess subject matter, which was up until then was kind of looking at the essence of the invention or the pith and substance of the invention or really the spirit of the invention. Um, These were kind of the terminologies used. Well, that's not the correct test. What needs to be done according to Supreme Court is you have to construe the claims in a purposive manner, okay? And really what that means to me when you, you know, 
um, and general understanding of what that means is that you are now looking at the claims in both an objective and a subjective uh, from those two lenses. So the objectively, a skilled person in the field, uh, what they consider that the elements stated in the claim, um, are they essential or not? So in other words, if you were to substitute or vary one of the elements, would that from an objectively, from a skilled person's point of view, change the way the invention works? Right. And if it changes the way the invention worked, well, then that element was uh, meant to be essential. And then the other part of this is, though, that you also look at the subjective intent of the inventor. There's a reason the claims are the way they are. And perhaps the elements that are stated in the claim were intended to be essential by the inventor. So you have to look at the spec. You have to look at it in a wholesome way and see if there's an explicitly um, explicit mention or an inference that you can draw that the in intention was that these elements are essential. But that's so, the test to be used. Right. So free world trust and whirlpool bring us back to a, a, a stricter adherence to the language in the claims and to really understand what the claims say with the subjective interpretation divine from the specification or the drawings or the, the general environment of of the invention that some elements within the claims should be considered to be essential and therefore need to be appreciated when it comes to evaluating patentable subject matter. We're yeah. good with that. What comes next? A lot of confusion. <laughs> a lot of confusion, um, a lot of misinterpretation of Canadian case law is how I would put it. Because what happened then is 10 years, 10, 11 years later from these 2000 um, Supreme Court cases uh, that we just talked about, we had, so that would bring us to 2011. So in really in the last 10 to 11 years, we have seen a few cases, well, two or three, when I say a few in Canada, and that's a yeah. lot, I guess, for Canadian <laughs> jurisprudence. Uh, we've seen these cases on the topic of, you know, patentable subject matter, especially computer-based inventions. And we've seen the court decide things a certain way. And then we have seen what the patent office's interpretation of the cases and the court's decisions are and how they are applying sort of the, the takeaways from the court, but in a very interesting manner. So, so we'll unpack that a little bit maybe in the next few minutes. So what came after this 2000, these 2000 decisions was um, um, Amazon uh, case in Canada in 2011. Um, I'm sure many of the audience members are aware of the case that I'm talking about, which had to do with the one-click purchase method, um, which, you know, especially going through COVID um, in the last two or three years, we've all really exhausted and used and uh, are very familiar with what this invention really means, which is you, it makes it easier for you to click and order items off the internet, essentially. Um, so in that case, the federal court um, and then the federal court of appeal really, well, actually backtrack a little bit. The, what happened there was the application, uh, this one-click purchase method application was rejected by SIPO. Uh, um, and then the patent appeal board decision came out, which said not, not patentable. This was appealed. It went to the federal court. And then there, the once again, you see the courts kind of highlighting the fact that, listen, purposive construction is the way to go. You can't just look at the claims and look at uh, what is the inventive contribution of different elements and pick and choose your essential elements. You have to do it the proper way as dictated by the Supreme Court. So using purposive construction. 
And the other important thing that came out of that case was uh, essentially this um, theme that, which we've seen in Lawson as well, is like a patentable subject matter must have a physical existence. So it must be, uh, must have a physical um, existence or manifest a physical or discernible effect or change. So that was key. And you would think that that's great. Why don't we all apply that law and live our lives and, and um, have a favorable treatment of patentable subject matter? But uh, unfortunately, shortly after that case is decided, in 2013, we see CIPO issue a practice notice, which is, again, their interpretation of the takeaway from the Amazon decision and what the, and the court said. And by the way, just backtracking the, the, the case, this um, the patent application from Amazon uh, once the court, federal court gave all these, um, you know, golden words of nag uh, nagira and what per, uh, to apply purposive construction and what the panel subject matter should have physical existence, the applications went back to CIPO for reassessment. And um, then there was an appeal to federal court of appeal. Uh, ultimately, though, the application was allowed and it was considered to be panel subject matter. But then the what came after was interesting, which is the CIPO's interpretation of all of this was, oh, we get to apply what's called a problem solution test to computer-based inventions. What that practice notice said was a patent examiner looking at um, you know, a computer-based invention is going to first look at the problem that the claimed invention is essentially trying to solve. And then they get to pick and choose the elements of the claim that the thing is solving that problem that they have construed. And only those elements that contribute to solving the problem are essential. And so they're basically stripping away elements in a claim to keep what um, they think is essential. And then they do the test to see, well, is this, um, you know, is this so-called essential thing uh, actually panel or is it under one of the exclusions, um, like under 27.8? So to apply to computer-based inventions, basically what you would see typically happening at the patent office is the patent office will start construing the problem in such a narrow way that computer elements or any of the hardware elements or any of the processors or the memory, et cetera, or output devices, input devices, those kind of things would become non-essential because they were not con contributing to the uh, problem at hand. And then what you were left with was the algorithm, really. And that then patent office could easily say was an abstract idea. It's a per se excluded. And so you didn't have an invention under section two of the patent act. This was problematic for many years. <laughs> so right. Uh, and and I think what's interesting also, and to keep in mind, because this theme is going to come back up. In Amazon, I seem to recall that the court viewed particularly uh, unfavorably the position taken by the commissioner to uh, decide spontaneously that there was a general exclusion to business method patents and the framework. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the court was was very harsh in its treatment of the attitude taken by the commissioner and by the Patent Appeals Board on this particular case. And this is important because I think this will come back later on in, in our discussion. So we've got Amazon granted patent, woohoo, we can do one click uh, shopping on the internet and pay some royalties to Amazon, although the patent issued shortly after that because it took so long to make its way through the courts. SIPO comes up or the Canadian IP office comes up they amend the MOPOP and they issue some practice notices where they really don't seem to be following what the court had said in, in Amazon. And of course, this leads to a few more cases, such as progressive Shifati? game. <laughs> oh, and yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So Progressive Games was, yeah, in 2000 as well. It was kind of around the same time as a free world trust and whirlpool. And that was an interesting case. Oh, that's a, so that case had to do with um, an interesting way of playing poker, <laughs> essentially. And uh, court went back to looking at what is a patentable art again. And they set down some framework, some criteria that um, need to be satisfied uh, for a invention to be considered patentable art. And in that, they said a few things, which we'll, we can think and talk about how problematic they may be, but some interesting things came out of it. And again, some of the themes you see continue on. Uh, one of the things they said was an invention is not a disembodied art. It has to be a method of uh, practical application. Um, they said if for something to be a patentable art, there has to be a new and innovative way of applying some skill and knowledge. And that the... Um, result or effect has to be commercially useful. Now, a big sort of red flag when you read that case is why are we talking about new and innovative things in the assessment of patentable subject matter? Should that not be the novelty assessment or um, subsequent you know, inventiveness or obviousness assessment? And why is commercial utility essentially being, again, brought into and snuck into the um, assessment of patentable subject matter. But nonetheless, that was what the court said in that case. But what we saw after um, you know, Amazon and then this practice notice in the profession in Canada, I mean, everybody was of the opinion that that practice notice of 2013, it did not align with the case law at all. And it's just a made up test of this problem and solution, which, it, you know, those who practice in Europe have are, are kind of used to this, where you kind of have to do the technical solution to a technical problem assessment when you're trying to argue patentable subject matter there. But that was never part of the Canadian uh, jurisprudence. So many times, you know, when you were, and this was kind of my, <laughs> spans my career from, um, uh, uh, and most of the years I spent arguing cases before CEPO was we're trying to work within the CEPO framework because that's what, you know, I got the impression the office was willing to consider. But you would also kind of point to them that this is not what Amazon said. Now that argument usually didn't carry a whole lot of weight because the examiner seemed adamant to apply their framework. But then lucky for us in 2020, we got a new case um, called Shufati that was then decided um, at the federal court uh, level. And once again, this, co this case had a similar journey as um, you know Amazon where you have a patent application that's filed, um, which uh, went through a long journey of prosecution um, and then there was a final office action issued. There was a, um, a, a patent appeal board decision issued. And essentially it said that the subject matter was not patentable. And then that was appealed to the federal court. And then federal court um, got an opportunity to opine on the framework that CEPO had been applying for the longest time, this problem solution framework. And federal court said that's not the correct framework. Uh, you have to go back to the purposive construction uh, framework from the 2000 cases, um, uh, Free Will tr Trust and Whirlpool. That was great. Like th th this was great. And then once again, you read that case and you come out of it thinking, okay, well, purposive construction, that's exactly what the court's been saying since 2000. So we're back to um, happy times again. Uh, but guess what happens? <laughs> but two months after that decision comes out, we get another practice notice from CEPO. And 
once again, this to me really felt like a sneaky way of reintroducing the problem solution analysis back into uh, how SIPO is uh, going to be treating computer-based patent applications. Because as part of this new uh, practice notice, what they were now saying is, listen, okay, we will apply purposive construction. And they paid lip service to the fact that purposive construction is the way to go problem solution is the wrong test. You see that language, but the, just a few paragraphs later in that practice notice, you start seeing problem solution again. So <clears throat> SIPO said, you know, we will assume all the elements in the claim are essential unless there is a case to uh, case otherwise, a reason to believe otherwise, but not all the essential elements are contributing to the invention. Not all the essential elements are actual invention. So they kind of talked about this concept of let's let's treat everything as essential, but then let's look to see what is the actual invention. And actual invention is, you know, it could be one element or it could be a combination of elements, but they have to cooperate together to essentially provide a solution <laughs> to a problem. And as you can imagine, anytime you had a computer running an algorithm, okay, well, first step, we'll, we'll, get, we'll, we'll acknowledge the computer is essential. But the second step, we're going to say the computer is not part of the actual invention. It's not helping to solve any problem. It's just used in a generic way, or it's just there doing what it's supposed to do. So the actual invention is really, again, just the algorithm, which doesn't have a physicality to it, and therefore is abstract and excluded under 27.8. So, so that is what we see now. <laughs> so, you know, we're what, eight, nine years after Amazon? The yeah. Courts, the courts have already said twice to the patent office, do not use problem solution. Patent office is coming back with these practice notices where they seem to be reintroducing or hammering home the notion of the analysis framework consisting of problem solution. Now someone's getting a little upset. Benjamin Moore comes away. <laughs> so what happened, and this is and this is the topic of of our talk today is is really what's happened in the Benjamin Moore case because it's sort of the culmination of all of this stuff yeah. happening for the past decade or so. So what's the Benjamin Moore case about? Okay, well, Benjamin Moore case is sort of hot off the press. It's a 2022 decision. Uh, but the making of it is uh, sort of pretty old, right? So we have these patent applications that were uh, filed as provisionals in 2007 filed as a PCT in 2008, they enter Canada. There are two applications, by the way, I, I may have said that already, but two applications at, at issue here, and they're kind of related, but they enter Canada in um, 2010. And the examination on these applications was only requested and only started in 2013, which by the way, lines up with post Amazon, CPO's practice notice of, right. of problem solution at that time. And so the framework that SIPO adopted to examine these cases was that uh, 2013 practice notice. Look at the problem, look at the solution, which elements are essential. Computer is not going to be considered essential. And so what's left is abstract. Um, so, so in the Benjamin Moore case, for our, for our listeners, yeah. Benjamin Moore is concerned with a computer-based system to allow you to harmonize the colors, the, the color scheme for your paints, according to some of your choices that you've made. So the, the result is not necessarily a coat of paint on your walls, but you're you're selecting different colors or you're, you're allowing the system to help you select different colors so that when you're redecorating your house or building your house, then you have a pleasing palette of, of colors for you to, to live in. 
right? Yeah, exactly. So one of the applications there was a user gets to decide a threshold of their uh, sort of comfort level with the colors or the uh, the their their uh, preferences, and in return, the algorithm will provide them with the color choices that will line up with the user's preferences. And on the other application, it was a user will select three or more colors, and a objective score will be assigned to that combination of color and that and that was really the sort of the all the hard work that went into by the inventors in those applications it was trying to come up with an objective evaluation of colors and uh, assigning them a score and in a way making sure that it is a repeatable and a predictable outcome when users go on to select colors they always get the same score assigned to if they were to choose the same three or four or five colors. And it was supposed to make the whole, uh, uh, this process of users to select colors um, easier, right? And and faster and more efficient and optimize the system. So that was kind of the underlying invention there. And um, back to kind of the journey of this application. So we have uh, from 2013 to 2017, these applications are being, they're undergoing examination before the Canadian Patent Office. And at some point, so in 2017, there was a final office action that was issued, which, by the way, for those who are not familiar with Canadian prosecution, the final office actions are not easy to come by, like, which is good, which means you get many kicks at the can uh, to prosecute your application in Canada. And the final office action is really only issued if the applicant and the examiner reach an impasse, uh, which is what happened in this case, because they couldn't get past what is patentable and what's not. Um, and so ultimately in 2020, we had a patent appeal board decision issued, which basically said these applications are not patentable. This was appealed. And that brings us to 2022 uh, federal court decision of Benjamin Moore. What was very interesting here, and um, and Louis Pierre should be very proud of his involvement with Epic here, is um, we had um, Epic, which is, by the way, basically a, an organization of patent professionals. So the profession, um, they got to intervene in this uh, case and propose a framework to the court. Um, which we'll, we can talk about in a second. But this framework was basically proposed so as to make sure that when the case went back to the patent office for reassessment, we're not stuck with the old practice notices or the or or even the new practice notice with the actual invention assessment, um, because all of that just has no basis in um, you know in law. So Epic got to propose a framework, and one of the questions that was, um, you know, discussed here was should, what what guidance should the court provide to CIPO when they send this case back for reassessment to CIPO? Federal court decided that they were going to adopt the Epic framework and tell CIPO to consider it and apply it. And that framework is something we should talk about. Um, so basically, Epic's framework here is. Step one, let's purposively construe the claims because guess what? That's what the courts have been telling us since 2000 to do. Uh, step two, once we have purposively construed the claims, we're going to ask whether the um, uh, whether there are any, or construed claims as whole consist of um, any abstract idea or a mere scientific principle, or is there a practical application that employs any abstract theorem or scientific principle? And then if the construed claims comprise a practical application, 
Then you assess those claims on other patentability criteria, including any judicial exclusions, as well as novelty and uh, obviousness and utility. So the test is simple and it aligns with what the courts have been saying for the longest time. Proposal we can shoot the claims. Let's give claim elements the meaning that they deserve and not just pick and choose what elements we're going to consider essential. Then let's look to see if there's a practical application aspect to the invention and then do all of your assessment of what's new, what's the inventive contribution, what the commercial utility is. All of that should come later. It shouldn't be conflated with the patentable subject matter assessment, which is a gatekeeping requirement. Exactly. And and that is, I think, so the, the title of this was Canada Goes Rogue, but in fact, the Benjamin Moore case, it, it doesn't make Canada a complete outlier in this. It brings back the notion of the identification of patentable subject matter as a threshold test. And this is a threshold. Does it smell like an invention? If it does, is it otherwise excluded by the act? No. Then you assess it for novelty and unobviousness, but you don't you don't introduce into the notion of patentable subject matter, which is part of the issue that they're living with in the United States, is introducing or conflating is the word you used, the notions of novelty and inventive step into the identification of patentable subject matter. There really are two different things and they need to be assessed differently. One is a threshold test. The other is a substantive test, right? Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Um, And also, I mean, I I think as far as I can tell, I think this was the first time a test that's proposed by the profession uh, through EPIC was actually uh, applied by the court and told by the court uh, to apply to a government body like SIPO, right? You don't usually see that in the previous cases of Amazon as well as um, Shafati. Generally, the case would be sent back to the, to, to the patent office um, to say reassess we think it's patentable, but you should reconsider. But no framework was provided alongside. Whereas in this case, a framework has been provided, which I think is great. Um, but guess what happens next is <laughs> we get an appeal, um, CIPO's appeal, that uh, decision um, essentially on this point exactly, which is why is court concerning itself with providing framework and guidance to CIPO? That should be CIPO's job. They should be, the court should just tell, tell CIPO to reassess the applications and stop there and not provide a test um, to go with it, but but that's but, the appeal now. But in all fairness, the courts have said a few times at least to SIPO, please adopt and please follow the law that's been set out for patentable subject matter. Apparently, SIPO is not following that advice. So perhaps the court decided that it was time to give some specific direction to SIPO for them to follow what they had been saying for the past decade or so. So you're right. Now we we're under an appeal situation. The case has not yet been heard at the appeal level. We suspect that a decision will probably issue sometime in 2023, barring any ex, you know, circumstances. But in the meantime, what does that mean for the cases that you're prosecuting now? Are you are you going back to SIPO saying follow Benjamin Moore? and uh, and uh, stop stripping or parsing out of the claim these elements that you feel are not relevant. You need to address the claim as a whole, purposively construed, and then move on to the other. Is that an argument that's having any success at this point? 
it's kind of too soon to say um, because uh, this decision is only a couple of months old on CIPO's website. And according to CIPO's practice, the new practice notice is still relevant, right? The, the 2020 practice notice post-Shafati. Now you are um, kind of in the same situation, I feel like that you were in post-Amazon where you all of a sudden had, you had this Amazon case and you were trying to argue cases um, based on the Amazon framework. But then 2011, a new practice notice was introduced and now you try to work with CIPO based on their um, practice notice because those are the instructions that examiners have been given is to apply their frame the framework that they have put in the practice notice. We're kind of back to kind of similar situation where you do talk about the cases because those are binding. You talk about Shafari case, you talk about the Benjamin Moore case, and I have tried to even apply the Benjamin Moore, the IPIC framework to the claims. I have, I'm waiting to hear back to see if the examiners are going to say, okay, well, let's apply this framework and, and, and you know, use that as our basis, or if they're going to come back and say, oh, that we don't recognize it. <laughs> we think that the practice notice of 2020 is still relevant. So please show us where your um, actual invention is and how is the computer part of that actual invention okay, um, so and the computer problems you're solving and all of that stuff. So I, it's it's too soon. So still a state of flux. We're not quite sure how the office is going to respond. They may wait until the completion of the appeal to issue another practice notice as they did in Amazon. Um, so, all right. So, so, so we don't really know what's going on. Some opponents to the test proposed by IPIC and eventually adopted by the court have suggested that the test is too broad. It's going to open the floodgates of uh, patent applications. What would you respond to something like that? So, you know, when people say um, test is too broad, uh, I mean, it's broad compared to what? The test um, is only broad because you're comparing it to the CIPO's made up tests uh, uh, in the practice notices. And those tests don't have any basis in law. I think the test that's proposed here aligns with the, what the case law has been saying for and reminding CIPO about uh, about applying proposive construction and looking at the sort of the practical application aspect of the claimed inventions. So the test is fine. Uh, I think the concern with the business method type of claims to be snuck in, et cetera, I believe they should be, those concerns should be dealt with differently because we have in from from Amazon we already heard the court say there is no per se exclusion to business methods those could be patented in the right circumstances right so our court or the, even the legislation didn't exclude business methods per se so now if there that's a concern then perhaps the best way to treat a business method um e applications is Perhaps you look at the novelty or the inventiveness assessment, the substantive assessment to say, well, what's happening is a mere automation or you're just doing something that people have been doing for the longest time and deal with it that way, but not bring in confusion and more unnecessary test elements and test steps into the this patentable subject matter test, the threshold test. Because what's being proposed right now, you know, it is exactly what the courts have been saying for the longest time. So... And and I think one of the the reactions to to this test is is the concern that we may see the rise of Canadian patent trolls uh, leveraging dubious patents granted following the 
the Benjamin Moore case. But I would I would float the the following argument to you, and, and I'd like to hear what what you think. You know, the the notion of patentable business methods stems from the State Street case in the United States in the late 1990s. And in that case, there really was a floodgate of applications filed before the patent office on some very legitimate inventions, but a lot of them were not really legitimate. And I think one of the problems there was that there was no history of patent applications, documented patent applications on business types of applications. And so the examiners were sort of handcuffed because they they didn't have a lot of munition to reject the patent applications on novelty or on obviousness. That was 20 years ago. So we've got, at least in the United States, 20 years of patent applications and granted patents on a whole slew of different business methods. And that body of prior art today should or could be used by Canadian examiners in order to assess novelty and unobviousness. And so do you think that the Canadian examiners would be well-equipped with this particular body of prior art to have a better go at rejecting applications that, that don't pass the smell test in terms of a novelty and unobviousness, and that the risk of this plethora of granted patents on dubious inventions is probably fairly low. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think what we've seen the patent office do over and over again is try to solve one problem by complicating an unrelated uh, issue, right? Like if the concern is business method applications um, or cases that don't pass the smell test, you have the benefit of all of these, as you said, like case law now, uh, 20 years of case law. And you also have the benefit of doing better prior art searches for using AI and all these other tools that are at CIPO's disposal. So you could do a much better job of assessing applications substantively using the new technology, really. Um, but trying to force elements in the patentable subject matter test because you're trying to address a problem that may, may or may not be relevant today is the issue that brings us to Benjamin Moore is exactly the problem because they, they, you know, you're, you're, you're not following the law at CIPO level, trying to issue these practice notices that are not consistent with the case law. And then you have, uh, you know, nobody's happy. So if the concern is um, the business method um, stuff, then certainly do a better job on, on the substantive evaluation of those cases and use the benefit of like the last few years of uh, case law, as well as prior art identification. So we're in this situation again, where the court is seized with a case. Um, there's an appeal at the federal appeals court that should be issued sometime in 2023, hopefully. Um, so the saga is not quite done yet. And there may even be an appeal to, to the Supreme Court, I hope. <laughs> I mean, in a way, because you we need more guidance, right? And we need more predictability and certainty for our clients, for the applicants. And so the more time we spend thinking about this issue and ultimately have something of value come out of the appeals and potentially even a Supreme Court um, decision. I think that's going to help us figure out what the next 10 years, perhaps, of the treatment of these inventions, especially computer-based inventions, are going to look like. Because whether we like it or not, I mean, in a way, the computer-based inventions are kind of the new steam engine, right, of the present century. It's so, uh, it's empowering so many other areas. We've got blockchain, we've got AI, we've got quantum. There's so much going on that is computer-based. And so, 
the sooner we figure out how we're treating these inventions, uh, I think the better the next few years and more stability in the process we can expect. And, so. and just as a final note on that, I think, you know, I think you're absolutely right. We live in a knowledge economy um, and knowledge economy for the time being is driven by advancements in computer-related technologies, whether that be the identification of, of new drugs or new mechanisms to treat certain disorders or uh, financial systems or you know optimizing the choices of a, a selection of colors for, for someone's house. I mean, this is all driven ultimately by what happens in a computer. And, and if we are to support a knowledge economy, the same way we did the the industrial revolution economy, then we need to, I think, have the same kinds of opportunities and, and protections awarded to the similar types of, of innovations. So I think it's it's very exciting. It's very interesting to see how this is all playing out, not only in our little neck of the word world in Canada, but also throughout other jurisdictions like in the United States. And we may uh, we may have you back on this show uh, in a few months from now to talk about the Federal Court of Appeals decision in the in the Benjamin Moore case. We're all We're... anxiously waiting. So <laughs> yeah, let's keep it going. Um, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. We have one question that just, just now came in hot off the press. The EPO ignores uh, non-technical features, but also technical features that do not contribute the, to the solution of a problem. How does CIPO address such features? Yeah, so CIPO's new guideline is, it kind of does the same thing, which is you are looking at uh, essential features, but they are excluded from what the actual invention is um, or how the patent examiners view the actual invention to be. So it puts you in a very weird situation with computer-based inventions because very easy for then the examiners to say um, the computer is not cooperating with the algorithm to solve the actual the problem and therefore it's not part of the actual invention. One way to go around it in Canada is if you have any kind of hardware that you're using either on the input side where the data is being collected and measured and then fed to a processor or on the output side where once the data has been processed, then it's causing some physical change, whether it's moving a robotic arm or drilling instruments or you know something that you can point to to say it's causing a physical change or has a physicality to it. Then bringing in those hardware elements could get you past the actual invention issue and, and all that. Or the other thing that you see in, in the US and Canada, you see it in Europe, you see it in almost all jurisdictions is, well, what is the computer problem that's being solved? So should you be in a situation where you don't have the other hardware to point to on the input or the output side, you just have an algorithm running on the computer well, then to show a physical and a discernible like physical effect or change, you are now stuck with showing that you are improving the computer itself or the functionality or the functioning of the computer, which is what where Shafati, how that case got allowed eventually was to the patent office found and concluded that um, that the optimization of data that was taking place was actually improving the uh, functionality of the computer in the sense that it was computer now had to use fewer computational resources to process the same amount of data, et cetera. 
So that's kind of what you're uh, stuck with. So which, which I mean, is it's, you know, what that means though, for Canadian applicants or people trying to get uh, foreign applicants trying to get patents in Canada is you really have to put in a lot of thought upfront when you're trying to draft these applications and yeah. take care of all your bases early on. So if you have a computer-based invention, you should certainly be talking with your patent agents about potential computer improvements to the functionality of the computer that uh, you can point to, that you can elaborate and talk about advantages in your patent application today. And you're ready for sort of the worst case scenario should the patent office not adopt the Benjamin Moore framework and stick to their uh, most recent uh, practice notice of 2020. So. Reshika Deer, thank you very, very much for your intervention this morning. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Have a great day, everyone. If you have any questions about the topics discussed in this podcast, you can sign up for free and message us, ficp.org. You can also find out more of what's to come on the FICP Focus 45 podcast series, either on the events page of our website, LinkedIn, or via our newsletter. See you next time.